If you will find your prayer that we've been using this week, 1549 from the Book of Common Prayer, would you join me as we join our voices and pray this together? Everlasting God, you have ordained and constituted the ministries of angels and mortals in a wonderful order. Grant that as your holy angels always serve you in heaven, so at your command they may help and defend us on earth. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, turn over on your sheet, if you have it with you, to part four. We uh, began last night talking about that particular type of angel, the fallen angels. Uh, we are talking about uh, demons, fallen angels. In the New Testament, we did Old Testament last night. We began to look at New Testament. We saw the, the dramatically increased demonic activity in the Gospels compared to the Old Testament, uh, even compared to the latter documents of the New Testament. Uh, we looked at uh, particularly two passages out of Mark's gospel, the oldest gospel, um, from Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 5. Uh, Mark's gospel in particular shows you the activity of Jesus with some teaching. Uh, compare that to John's gospel, you, you, you hear a lot of teaching from uh, Jesus and John's gospel with some activity. But particularly in Mark's gospel, you see Jesus, the exorcist, uh, prevalent. So um, we looked at the um, demonic as they came after Jesus. We saw last night how the demons knew who Jesus was before his disciples figured it out. Uh, I want to look at uh, just a few remaining passages and then maybe share a little bit from experience. Uh, look at 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9. Again, one of the latter documents of the New Testament, but a famous text about um, the work of demons. And again, Satan is the head demon. Satan is the head of the fallen angels, just like Michael is the head of the good angels. So when we talk about demons, uh, we're saying a lot about Satan. When we're talking about Satan, we're saying a lot about demons. But if you look at, at 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, uh, a famous text here that says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, and I mentioned to you last night that the word Satan, Hosatan, the Satan is the adversary. Uh, when it becomes just a proper name, Satan, it still means adversary. So again, here in verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. So... Um, you need to be, as Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful. You know, there are a lot of Christians, particularly in the materialistic West, that are completely oblivious uh, to the world of the Spirit. They're completely oblivious to the 
to the, to the cosmic struggle going on around us and how we participate in that cosmic struggle. So the New Testament and Christian tradition throughout our history keeps calling us uh, to, be, to be watchful. Uh, the, the, one of the big problems in the Christian community, particularly in the materialistic West, is we are in the midst of a cosmic war, but there are a lot of Christians who are not doing battle in the cosmic war. They're oblivious to, to reality. And again, I try to keep using that phrase that part of what I want to do this week is help all of us get in touch with reality. Not as we define it, not as the culture around us defines it, but as God defines it. So uh, reality as God defines it uh, includes a strong, strong supernatural element. So uh, pay attention to 1 Peter 5, verse, verse 8. Um, notice verse 9 says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You know, every time I see the Bible saying something like resist him or um, resist evil in general, it, it, it gives me great comfort because we would not be told that if that were not an option. We have the, we have the power. I, I mentioned last night that the enemy is smarter than we are, but we have more power than he does. Uh, a lot of the power that the enemy has is because we give up our power and we, we give it to the enemy. Uh, sometimes we have no choice but to yield to temptation. That's not true. We have the power to resist. We have the power to resist temptation. Again, the devil is not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. The devil is no more omnipresent than Michael the archangel is. Uh, so don't give the enemy more power than the enemy has. The enemy's smart. And again, I commend the screw tape letters to you from C.S. Lewis just to see the normal way that the demonic world uh, uh, leads us into temptation and causes us to fall to temptation. Uh, but we have power to resist. We have power to resist. So the next verse I've got there for you, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, 3 through 5. I want to hang out here just a little bit. 2 Corinthians 10. And of course, this is Paul. Paul, one of the letters he wrote to the church at Corinth. Some of you in the room visited Corinth with me recently. This is one of the letters that Paul wrote to the church there in Corinth. One of the things that we know about the church in Corinth, because it was a Greco-Roman church. Uh, it was in what we call today Greece, uh, southern part of Greece. It was a Greco-Roman environment. It was in Greece, but it was settled by Romans. So that culture there was, there were Jews there. There was a synagogue there. Uh, but the majority of the people in Corinth were Greco-Roman, they were Romans living in a Greek culture, which means they had a multiplicity of gods. One of the things that is um, core to the New Testament is this. When Paul was running around the ancient world, kind of beyond the Jewish context, and he's running around places like Corinth, they have all this, these idols. Now, when you look at an idol just the stone version or wood version of an idol, it, it is basically nothing but stone or wood. 
prophet Isaiah tells you that over and over. It's just stone and wood. Instead of having a God, a God who carries you, you have a God that you have to carry if it's just a stone or wood idol. But the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, particularly Paul, is very clear that sometimes those pagan gods had power. They had power to um, astonish people. They had power to attract people. And what was going on there, again, is what's behind those pagan gods or the other gods in the world, because there's only one God. But Paul says very clearly, when, when, when you sacrifice to the idols, you're, you're sacrificing to gods, little g. So there are, there, there's power behind idols. There's power behind false gods. Uh, it's just demonic power. Uh, one of the books I, I, I recommend to you, and I never thought I'd be recommending this author, but then I got smart enough to read this author, and I'm going to recommend one of his books to you. Um, don't, I, on one of his books I've read, I know people that have read several of his books, they all may be wonderful, but the one that I read that I highly commend to you is um, The Return of the Gods by Jonathan Kahn. Um, I, I, I desperately wish you would read that, The Return of the Gods by, by Jonathan Kahn. It's very popular now. It's on the, it's on the bestseller list. It will be provocative. It will keep your attention. Um, you can tell what the book is about, The Return of the Gods. The, the premise of the book, which I accept, here in the West, after we became, after we became thoroughly materialistic, here in the West, we've sort of swept the room clean of the true God and Jesus Christ and angels and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've swept the room clean because we've ceased to believe, really believe in those things. And uh, what has taken their place, what has taken their place is the old gods have returned. Um, the demons, the demonic, the power that used to animate the old gods. And he points out some things, and, and you'll have to decide how, how much veracity or truth to give to this. He points out some things such as, you know, some of these pagan gods are, are returning. Um, some of these pagan gods are returning, and he's giving some amazing examples, such as two that he points out. And I went to make sure this is true, and it is true. One I've seen, I've physically been in the presence of, and I think I even had my photograph taken with, you know, one of, the, one of the most prominent ancient gods was the god Baal or Baal. Prominent throughout the Hebrew Bible. We, we sort of overcome. You know, when we did the Philistines in and we did Jezebel and Ahab in, we sort of did away with the prophet or the, the pagan god Baal or Baal. Well, in some ways, now that we've kind of cleaned our world of the real god, some of the pagan gods are coming back. The prevailing image, and you know this from your Bible, the prevailing image of Baal or Baal, B-A-A-L, is the bull. We don't even notice now when we're on Wall Street, this big, big bull sitting there on Wall Street. Um, I didn't even pay attention to that till I read this book and yeah, there's a big bull sitting there at the center. That bull has symbolized something throughout most of uh, Jewish and Christian history. Uh, 
You can make of that what you want. Uh, there's also now in New York City a gate of Astarte. Astarte is another pagan god. I mean, some of these gods are not even coming back incognito. Some of these gods are coming back just full-fledged for everybody to see. Anyway, I recommend the return of the gods to you and do with it as you will. Um, you know, Jesus said, um, you know, if you cast out a demon and you don't replace that vacancy with God, you may get seven demons back in their place. So don't, don't, make, don't cast out spiritual reality. There, there is a spiritual reality that will take its place. So the ancient world, particularly the Greco-Roman world or the pagan world around um, Israel, um, gods were all over the place. So when you look at Paul's encounter with the pagan world, whether it's 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, um, Galatians, Paul spent most of his time in the pagan world. He found Jews there, but he spent most of his time in the pagan world. Uh, he was going into a world with a multiplicity of gods, with a multiplicity of sexual moralities competing. Think about the book of Acts. Uh, we need to particularly revisit the book of Acts to teach us how to live in this world we're living in because all of a sudden we're back in a world with a multiplicity of gods and a world with a multiplicity of moralities being offered to people. So particularly when you go to the New Testament, you know, the Gospels, Jesus, they're taking place in, in what we would call the Holy Land, but particularly pay attention to when Paul is beyond the Holy Land. He's in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, there is so many similarities between the world that we're inhabiting and the Greco-Roman world that, that Paul inhabited in the first century. Uh, that's sort of the background to Paul roaming around the Greco-Roman world. So um, look at now, go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This, this type of language is throughout Paul's letters because, again, he's in the Greco-Roman world. A uh, world full of different gods, little g's. Um, look at verse 3, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine, divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Um, we have the power to do that. Uh, I'm glad we have the power to do that because the enemy has the power to raise up strongholds in our lives. You notice as soon as he starts talking about strongholds, he's also talking about arguments and lofty opinions. Uh, we know that when Paul talks about strongholds, what he's talking about are mental strongholds. He's talking about things within our mind, our heart, our personalities that are strongholds of the enemy. Uh, we, we just, you know, we believe certain things, we think certain things, and it's not of God. They're strongholds from the enemy. I'm so glad that this text tells us we have the power to pull them down. 
We have the power to destroy strongholds. We can take every thought captive to Christ. Now, again, we think that, you know, we're at the mercy of our thoughts. We're at the mercy of what we feel. But the Bible teaches we don't have to be. Uh, We have a remarkable power within us. We can resist uh, these strongholds. Um, I remember growing up in, in my world, sort of the mountain culture of Western North Carolina. I remember hearing the old timers talk about notions. People would get notions. And it didn't matter if they were true or false or ridiculous. I was, I was taught growing up, I was taught growing up, you can never eat fish and dairy products together. I went into my teenage years believing that. Till finally I realized that was a notion. I don't think there's any evidence of that. That was a stronghold. That came out of my background. That came out of my family. It was ingrained in me. And you know, people that I love taught me that. That didn't make it true. People that I love taught me that. So what the enemy does to us, again, read screw tape letters. He gets you to create, he would help you create strongholds in your mind that will destroy you, defeat you, destroy you, hold you down, hold you back. You know, part of the most important thing that Christians need to understand is you need to let God in Christ tell you who you are. Your identity is in Christ. You are not the product of your past. You are not the product of your failures. You are not the product of your successes. You are the product of the cross. You are the product of the work of God in Jesus Christ. Everybody in your life might have told you you weren't the sharpest kid on the block. And that became a stronghold. You start believing that stuff. Particularly when we're growing up, if we're told something enough times, we'll start believing it. And it may be a stronghold from the devil. I knew one father, uh, when I was growing up, I knew one father, whenever he would get ill at, at his son, he would say, you have no more sense than that girl of, and you don't know this person, that girl of Hubert Robertson. Now, in my world back then growing up, we all knew who Hubert Robertson was. And we knew that his girl, his daughter, was severely, we would say today, we didn't say it back then, we would say today was severely mentally disabled. And here was a father when he got angry would tell his very normal son, you don't have any more sense than that girl of Hubert Robertson. So sometimes we grow up and we start believing nonsense that people tell us. We start believing nonsense. The enemy can use that. The enemy can use these strongholds. He'll help you strengthen the strongholds in your mind that are not there because of the mind of Christ. They're not biblical truth. It's just some notions, strongholds, some mental mapping that you accepted, and it's controlling your life right now. Again, we have, to, we have to discover that we are who we are according to who God in Christ says we are, not according to what the people in our life told us growing up or anybody else. Um, 
the enemy will use, again, the enemy's wise. We have more power, but the enemy's wise. He will use whatever entrance into our lives to develop these strongholds that can hold you down, hold you back for your life. And I'm glad that the Apostle Paul says, let me read it again. This is a critical text. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war. And some Christians misread that. They just read that saying, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war, period. Can't stop there. You can't put a period there. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. You better be waging war. You better be waging war but not according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What are the weapons of our warfare? Prayer, fasting, worship, praise. Those are the weapons that tear down strongholds. Don't, don't sell yourself short and start using the weapons of the flesh, the weapons of this world. The weapons that we have, prayer, fasting, worship, the, the art of praise, those are much stronger weapons than anything this world offers. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Those weapons I mentioned to you, and there's others, those weapons I mentioned to you have divine power to do what? To destroy strongholds. And if you wonder what strongholds are, the next verse, we destroy arguments notions, every lofty ideal raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I know some people that their theology that they create, their theology that they live by, has to do with their children and what their children choose and how their children live and what their children think. And I love my children. My children are not going to create my theology. I'm not going to let you create my theology. Uh, we have the resources of God to help us create our theology. Uh, our mind is a, is, a, is a powerful tool, and it is a terrible thing to waste, by the way. So pay attention to what you're doing to your mind. Pay attention to what it is behind the thoughts you have. You may go your whole life thinking you can't eat fish and dairy together, and you may really miss out. Um, because somebody along the line that you respected, that you loved, believed that, lived that way, and you started doing the same thing. Again, we are, we are trainable and we are teachable human beings. We need to be very careful who trains us and who teaches us. Uh, that's why Paul will say, like in Philippians 4, take on the mind of Christ. That's an option now. Take on the mind of Christ, not the notions of your strange relatives. Take on the mind of Christ. We all are, to a certain extent, culturally bound. I get that. We're all, to a certain extent, culturally bound. Um, as an aside, I will tell you, because I'm not sure everybody knows this. And there's part of me that tells you this with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Because of the world we live in right now. But when I'm in this pulpit and I look to my left, you may not know this. There's Robert E. Lee looking at me from that stained glass window. Um, this, this same window was in a church in Boulder, Colorado, and about two years ago, with great pomp and circumstance, they took Mr. Lee out of that window. Had to take Mr. Lincoln out also because they were attached. 
we got Robert E. Lee in that window there, and I've really not ran into any problem here in High Point, North Carolina. I've only had one person ever say something to me about Mr. Lee, and here's my argument about that. Everybody in these windows, and there's hundreds of people in these windows, everybody in these windows except the Lord Jesus Christ were to a certain extent captured, captivated by their culture. If we only put perfect Christians in these windows, there'd be nobody in these windows but Jesus. Right over here near Robert E. Lee is, I mentioned him to you last night. Over here is St. Jerome. St. Jerome is the person who lived in a cave underneath the city of Bethlehem in the 5th century. He, he, he took the Hebrew and the Greek Bibles and gave us the Latin Vulgate, which was, which was our Bible for a thousand years. The word Calvary does not occur in the English Bible. The word Calvary is only in the Latin Vulgate. So that was our Bible for a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate. Over there's Jerome. We owe something to Jerome. He gave us the Latin Vulgate, the Bible of the people that we spoke language. We spoke Latin at that point. He hated women and he hated Jews. No, he wasn't perfect. There's no perfect people here. We're all culturally captured to a certain extent, and we have to work hard to make sure that we're more captured by Jesus Christ than we're captured by the culture around us. And sometimes the culture around us is much more insidious and much more seductive Again, screw tape letters, how the enemy attacks us. The culture around us is much more insidious, much more seductive, and we start doing what the culture wants directly contrary to what God has revealed that he wants. Because of, you know, I, I was told growing up as a teenager to watch out for peer pressure. And I know a lot of adults that need to watch out for peer pressure. I mean, the, the, the wind of culture is so strong, we can create strongholds. And the enemy wants to help us to create strongholds. And we are convinced, you know, we're in a culture now. And I, I, I like to think I'm a quasi-historian. And, and what I do know is Western civilization. I don't know Eastern civilization. But there's a lot of things unique about Western civilization at this point in our history. One of those things is, for the first time in our history, it seems to be, in the West, a prevailing idea that all opinions are created equal. That's why everybody can be an expert in this culture. All opinions are created equal. Not even God gets to trump some people's opinions in this culture. That's a strange place for, for any civilization to be. You know, all of a sudden there's not truth. Start listening to the culture around you. There's not truth. There's your truth and my truth. Your reality and my reality. Our ancestors, even beyond the birth of Christianity, our ancestors like Plato and Aristotle would have thought we have lost our minds. To start saying, you have your truth, I'll have my truth. Four plus four might equal eight for you, but it equals nine for me. And how dare you tell me it doesn't equal eight? Well, we got this strange world we're in now. And, and, and again, Paul in the first century is telling us to be aware that one of the chief tools of the enemy is to build strongholds, arguments, lofty ideas and opinions that are not of God, but they are dear to us and we'll let them run our lives. We'll let them run our lives. You know, again, the reason the screw tape letters is important, and I 
I get no royalties from that book. But if you read the screw tape letters, you'll see how easily seduced we are as human beings. We can rationalize about anything we want to rationalize. It's frightening how we can rationalize things. Um, I, don't wanna, I only have a couple more scripture texts to go to, so I've got a little extra time tonight. Let me give you an example that I, was, that I discovered in my second appointment, my second church. Some of you heard me tell this story. My poor wife has probably heard me tell this story numerous times. But it was very formative for me. I had a lady in my second church whose husband was having an affair. He had moved out of the trailer. He was living with another woman. She came to me and said, will you help me put my marriage back together? And I said, I'll do anything I can to help. You know, if you and your, you and your husband, you know, it takes two to have a marriage. If you and your husband will come see me. I never believed it would happen. She was very active in my church. I'd never met her husband, the man who was having an affair with somebody else in the neighborhood. But sure enough, I got a phone call. They're, they wanted to come see me as a couple. And I'm, I probably wasn't even 30 years old, was I, Tammy, at that point. I was probably late 20s, second church, late 20s, as green as they come. But yeah, I met with this couple. I was going to try to help them. I had a degree from Duke. I was going to try to help them. Um, this, the degree from Duke didn't help me much on this one, but common sense helped me. I, I, I was sitting there in front of them, and, and I, I knew if I wanted to help them, I, I looked at the gentleman, I said, are, are, you, are you having an affair? Because you can't put this marriage together until you kind of put that behind you. I said, are you having an affair? I will never forget what he said to me. He looked at me with all, all, you know, in this world, if you're just sincere, that's all that matters, if you're sincere. He was sincere. He sincerely looked at me and said, to my question, are you having an affair? He, he with great sincerity, looked at me and said, I don't know. <laughs> I was better than you. I didn't laugh at him. They did teach me that at Duke. I didn't laugh at him. I just sort of swallowed, and I looked at him. I said, uh, we can figure this one out. I said, are you having sexual or emotional relations, sexual or emotional relations with someone that's not your wife? Again, with great sincerity, he looked straight at me and said, yeah, but I don't know if I love her. I said, it counts. We have an amazing ability to rationalize if we want it. We can destroy our family and have good reasons for doing it strongholds. That's how the enemy works in our lives. And I'm so grateful that Paul tells us that. I'm grateful he tells us we have weapons that can help destroy those strongholds, which are arguments, lofty opinions, and every knowledge, every, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. We can take every thought captive, Paul says, to Christ. You know, just because you feel it or think it doesn't mean it has to go your life. You can take it captive and turn it over to Jesus Christ. Again, the enemy has wisdom, maybe more than we do on a lot of days, but we have more power. Uh, we don't have to yield to the temptation. We don't have to live by crazy ideas. And by crazy ideas, I mean ideas that God would not sanction. I don't care how, if everybody in the culture sanctions them, if God doesn't sanction them, uh, they, they, they will be inevitably destructive ideas for human beings. So, uh, pulling down strongholds. Um, while you're here, look over at, at chapter 11, verse 4. 
And I think I referenced this the other night when we were talking about the devil, the devil's name Lucifer, which means light bearer. Um, Look what Paul says. Again, speaking to the Corinthians, and they were a wild, wild people. By the way, they were so wild in the ancient world, the Greek word to Corinthianize meant to live sexually immoral lives. That's what to Corinthianize meant. That's, that's why Paul, Paul, other than Ephesus, the place he spent the second largest amount of time was in Corinth. He was there about 18 months because there was a lot of work to do in Corinth. Um, anyway, if you look at chapter 11, uh, look at verse 14, you learn something that's very important. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, uh, Paul says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Again, well, one, you heard C.S. Lewis last night talk about how ridiculous it is to think the devil's, you know, has a red suit and horns and pitchfork and all that stuff. Uh, that's not the picture of the devil. That, I don't know where they even comes from, Hollywood probably. But the devil comes into our life as an angel of light. You know, most of us won't wake up tomorrow morning and, and say yes to the devil in regards to doing something really heinous and terrible. But we'll do something little that would just pull us a little away from Christ. And the next day, a little bit further away from Christ. And the next day, a little bit further away from Christ. Again, read the screw tape letters. It's the little thing. The best path to hell is the gradual path. Slow. Because we'll do that. You know, we will wake up one day and we're not where we want to be spiritually. Um, Yeah, the, the devil comes as an angel of light. And again, that's very frightening in a culture where all opinions seem to be created equal and everyone can be an expert um, and they can even trump God on the wisdom of God. So we need to be careful. Again, the primary battleground in your life, in my life, the primary battleground of the enemy is in our mind. That's why Paul says so often, take on the mind of Christ. He actually says, you have the mind of Christ. You know, if Paul had been born in my part of North Carolina, he'd have said, for God's sake, use it. You have the mind of Christ. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that's the chief place of our, of, our, of our battlegrounds. So let me um, close with this last text, and then I'll talk about experience a little bit. Um, Very familiar text, and there's so many more we could be looking at. The New Testament book is a book all about spirituality. And again, I hope that you are tweaking your worldview to see the world differently as as a place where the Spirit is very much alive. I hope that you're tweaking the way you read the Bible. Because the Bible, again, 500 references to angels. The Bible is a book that is filled with the miraculous, filled with the supernatural. So if you just choose to ignore that, there's a lot of the Bible you're going to be ignoring. Okay, here comes Ephesians. Um, the, The only place worse than Corinth for demonic activity in the ancient world was Ephesus. Ephesus, um was filled with pagan gods, demonic activity. Paul stayed there two and a half years. Um, so again, when you read the book of Ephesus, you see, or the book of Ephesians, you see all the, 
all the conflict that Paul had dealing um, with, with the, the people there in Ephesus. Uh, John, the apostle, pastored in Ephesus. Timothy pastored in Ephesus. Paul uh, spent time doing ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus needed a lot of work. Um, and, you know, that's why when you look at a text like we're getting ready to look at in Ephesians chapter 6, um, that tells you something about the city of Ephesus, that he's writing stuff like this. So look at chapter 6. This is a very, very famous text, um, 610 and following. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And this is a good text to end on. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. He's going to talk about what that armor is later. But put on the full armor of God. Uh, again, think about the heavenly weapons, the full armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul wants to make sure you understand the devil has schemes. And you need to be wise to those schemes. You need to understand the devil's game. Because the devil has schemes. Uh, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now again, some Christians mistranslate they, that and they, they read it for we do not wrestle, period. You're in a cosmic war, so I hope you're in battle in this cosmic war. Um, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the, super, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see the order there? The, the spiritual world, whether it's the, 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 the angels of light and the kingdom of God, or if it's the fallen angels and the kingdom of Satan, there's, there's a hierarchy um, or as we saw the other night, Peter Kreft said, when it comes to the devil, it's a, it's a lower archy. But at least God has a higher archy. But there's an order. There's an order. So we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against creatures with bodies. Sometimes we get confused about that. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and in the heavenly places. I have to tell myself on a regular basis, that human being, that human being that I think is getting on my last nerve, that human being that I would put in a category as an enemy to me, is not really my enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we're, we're getting a little delusional if we forget that. Uh, the, we wrestle against powers and principalities. We re wrestle against spiritual forces. Now, those powers, those forces will use other human beings to come at us. But I try to never, I, I, I wanna reserve my hatred. By the way, you know, please, please, please don't get your theology off of Facebook. It's problematic. You know, I see sentences thrown up on Facebook that some people start sharing right and left because they think it sounds profound. Such as one that I keep seeing going around says, hatred is not holy. Hmm. Even if you don't know anything but the birds singing turn, 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 
you know that there is a time for war, a time for peace, a time for love, a time for hate. There, are, there is a time for hate. We should hate child abuse. We should hate human trafficking. There are things we are called to hate. We are called to hate whatever God hates. Now, again, we need to be clear. When I start feeling like I want to hate another human being, I need to remind myself it's not that human being that I hate. It's the powers and the principalities and the spiritual forces of wickedness that's using that poor, pitiful human being to come at me. So we need to be clear about our, our struggle. We need to make sure we're, we realize we do wrestle. That's part of the human condition in this world. Um, we need to be clear about that because that way we will view the people that we think. By the way, don't be afraid of the word enemy. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he assumed you'd have some. And if you have none... You're not much of a threat to anybody. I mean, I at least hope the powers of darkness are your enemy. I hope that the powers of darkness have put a bullseye on your back. If they haven't, there might be an issue there. When Jesus said, love your enemies, he assumed you would have some. So don't be, don't be afraid of that. Now, you know, I know some people that make more enemies than they can deal with. Don't go out there and try to make a bunch. But when you end up with some enemies, you know, you don't have to say, well, you know, my, Jesus did not die to make us nice people. Now, I like being nice. Most of the days, most of the time, I like being nice. Jesus died to make us holy people. Jesus died to make us his people. Jesus died to set us apart, to sanctify us, to help us be little Christ in this world. And some, there were days Jesus wasn't nice. We're not called to be nice to everybody, everything. Some people think Jesus died just to make us all nice people. And that's about all they want out of the Christian life is just, oh, God, make me nice. You know, if that's all you want, I, we can help you out at Rotary. And I'm a Rotarian. I'm a faithful, pretty much faithful Rotarian. We can help you do that at Rotary if that's all you want out of this world is to try to be a nice, open, tolerant person. Rotary will probably do better than the Christian faith will do with that one. As soon as you come into the Christian faith, you're going to find you're in a cosmic battle. You're going to find that you're in a wrestling match. So you better be aware of that. Be aware of what you have with which to wrestle. Um, yeah, you need to get, in, again, we started out this way. Get in touch with reality. You know, get in touch with reality. So um, you hear, and then if you keep reading this text, after you've introduced to the wrestling match we are a part of, he says, verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God. And you see the armor, I'll just read it quickly, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all to stand firm, stand He's talking about standing. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth. Paul would not have understood a culture that says you've got your truth, I've got my truth. So you buckle on what you want and I'll buckle on what I want. 
He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. He's talking about God's truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Peace is created by the gospel. Not by good wishes, but by the gospel. Given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The evil one slings some flaming darts your way. Take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. I particularly like this, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I know some Christians that have laid their sword down a long time ago. And I don't want to be in this world without the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, with which I can defend myself and defend my family. And then he ends up with um, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. Uh, Spirit-filled, Spirit-led praying. Praying at all times in the Spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all per- perseverance. Okay, there's the Bible. Some of it, we keep going. Let me talk a little bit about experience. And notice I've left this to the end because particularly in our culture, we Christians need to understand the Word of God is primary. You know, what you experience, the stories you hear, the stories that are shared, they may be important, they may be edifying, but make sure the, the Word is what really forms your theology, not what people tell you about their experiences. Uh, there's a place for experience, but it comes after, after the word. If I have any experiences in life, if I think anything in life, if I feel anything in life that's contrary to the word, I need to do some adjusting. But experiences are, um, are important, are important. Um, we're in an age where people don't even talk about exorcism anymore in mainline churches. There's more talk about exorcism now than there was 40 years ago. Um, but in mainline churches, it's still rather difficult to hear people talk about exorcism. Um, I've never just hung out in one little Christian subculture in my life. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've hung out in a lot of different Christian cultures. Uh, I've not just stayed in the United Methodist world all my life. Uh, my, my initial training was in a Roman Catholic world, and then I went to Duke Divinity School, which mainline Protestant Methodist. Then I went to Gordon-Conwell. That's an evangelical school founded by Billy Graham, or he didn't found it. He brought about a, the, the, the uniting of Gordon and Conwell into one of the largest seminaries in the United States, Gordon-Conwell. And then to, to make sure I was well-rounded, I went and got another master's from UNC Charlotte, I guess that means I went to a pagan institution. So there's Catholic, there's mainline Protestant, there's uh, Protestant Evangelical Protestant, and there's UNC Charlotte, uh, secular, uh, doing religious studies in all these types of places. You know, I, and I, I'm so grateful that I've not hung out in one little subculture all my life. The, the, the Roman Catholics, um, the Benedictines at Belmont, who um, I still stay in contact with, of uh, the Benedictine monastics there in Belmont, uh, the Roman Catholic Church just redid their manual of exorcism in the late 1990s. Now, they're very specific about exorcisms, and we need to be careful 
when we talk exorcisms. You know, in the Catholic world, only a Jesuit can do exorcisms. Uh, they, they got that right on the movie The Exorcist. They were in Georgetown, remember? That was a Jesuit school. Only a Jesuit is certified by the diocese or the bishop to do exorcisms. Uh, and there's usually just one Jesuit who is the exorcist for the diocese. You know, it always fascinates me. Every year, there'll be some article in some newspaper that says, oh, the Archdiocese of New York approved three exorcisms this year. And I just want to go, duh? Well, yeah. You know, um, yeah, exorcisms still occur in the Roman Catholic world. Now, again, they're, they're adamant, and I'm so glad they trained me with this, trained everybody with this. Exorcism's the last... last um, Last thing you choose, you do the mental, you do all the mental work, you do all the physical work, you may need to then, that's why it's a, you have to have, a, in a Catholic world, you have to have approval uh, by a bishop to do an exorcism because you can be damaging people. If I, if I start doing exorcisms on everybody at Weston Memorial, I might just really mess all of you up. So you need to have some quality control on your exorcisms, but because you want quality control on your exorcisms, don't think they don't need to happen. You know, Jesus was not just delusional in the first century. They had good sense in the first century, too. And they could, by the way, I believe, a lot of historians in my era believe, um, they knew the difference between demon possession and mental illness in the ancient world. Sometimes they might have got confused, but basically there were a lot of times they knew the difference between exorcism and mental illness. So don't just say, well, bless their hearts. All those people in the Gospels, they were just so stupid. They didn't, know they, they didn't know about mental illness. Well, they were smarter than we give them credit for. It's just like, um, you know, when, they, when we in the Christian community were running around talking about the virgin birth, we, we knew where babies came from. I mean, they weren't stupid in the ancient world. I know we think we're the most brilliant people God's ever created. But uh, we, there's exorcisms in the gospel. There's exorcisms throughout um, Christian history. Even in our baptismal service, do you reject the evil powers of wickedness? That's how we Methodists say it. Uh, I like the old way of saying it. Do you reject the pomp and circumstance of the devil? If I do that with your infants, you freak out. That's why several years ago we changed that. Uh, do you reject the evil powers of wickedness or whatever we say in our baptismal liturgy? But even infant baptism always has an exorcism piece to it. So notice that next time. We dumb it down a little bit. Do you reject all the forces of evil or something like that? But the, the historic church, at least to the last hundred years, we usually made reference to the pomp and circumstance of the devil. Do you reject that? So, you know, we Christians historically till recent days in certain places, we've gotten nervous about exorcism. Um, and we just don't believe it happens, it goes away. And that's why when in some archdiocese somewhere uh, authorizes a Catholic priest to um, have an um, exorcist, it makes news. Like, that's so odd. The other place that you see exorcisms happening is in a lot of, and you know, labels always break down at some point, but it keeps us from being here all night, is particularly in the Pentecostal charismatic world, uh, the deliverance ministries. So um, in the last um, 80 years, um, deliverance ministries have, have, have uh, become more popular. Um, if you come to our healing service, 
which just occurred before this, ser- this session. We do a healing service every Wednesday night in the chapel. We use the United Methodist Eucharistic Prayer for Healing that talks about Jesus casting out demons. And usually when I'm using that Eucharistic prayer from the United Methodist Book of Worship, I usually read that and pause for a moment to let all the moderns let that word demon sink in just a little bit. So we're doing better now than we were doing in the 60s and the 70s. We're recapturing some of our some of our historic faith. There's a book that just came out uh, by a great Western scholar. His name is uh, was Peter. Most of us call him Petey. Petey Bellini, a great Italian guy. He has written a book on Western theology. And uh, the, the point of the book is almost all of Wesley's preaching was about deliverance. Delivering you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He breaks the, we sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. So if you read the, the, the sermons, particularly the journals, of John Wesley, um, exorcisms happened. So this book that P.D. Bellini has written on the deliverance ministry of John Wesley, I love the title, and I'll tell you what, where the title comes from. The title of the book is Thunderstruck. Thunderstruck. The reason he titled the book Thunderstruck is in the 18th century in the journals of John Wesley, they frequently spoke about people being thunderstruck in Methodist gatherings. Um, sometimes in, in modern years, I would have been slain in the spirit or whatever. But Wesley and his crowd called it thunderstruck. So this has always been part of Christian tradition. Um, now, again, if you don't believe the enemy's real, they will probably, you know, that's fine. He'll leave you in ignorance and let you go on about your life. But um, this has always been part of the Christian tradition. I'll close with this. And uh, I had to tell... Only one time in my life, because, and it's a long story, I will not tell you the long story. Um, for about 20 years, I never told anybody, because I didn't want anybody calling the bishop and saying, our pastor's unstable. I'm, I'm old enough now, I don't care who you call. Um, only once in my life, and I was in a, it's a long story, but I was working with someone in need of an exorcism. And I was doing the official, I was Methodist, thinking they never told me about this at Duke Divinity School. But I knew enough to go get me a Catholic priest, to go get the, I I learned who the exorcist was in Charlotte, North Carolina. Long story, I won't bore you with all this story. Very long story. My wife can tell you about it. She kind of lived it with me. But I'll just kind of close with this and then say sweet dreams, I guess. But I'll close with this. Dealing with that lady, that particular lady, it was about a six-month process. I saw her delivered in an amazing, remarkable way. First time I ever tried to get her into a sanctuary to pray, she collapsed unconscious. unconscious. Before it was over with, I got her in the sanctuary to pray. I watched great deliverance come. Uh, she ended up going from very, very, very really bad shape to working for the Charlotte Mecklenburg Police Department. That's how healed she became. But one of the days when, um, when uh, the, the day I finally got her into the sanctuary, we prayed, we talked, we talked the, um, uh, the spiritual weapons, we talked about the spiritual weapons that are ours in Jesus Christ. 
I just started seeing remarkable, and I had taken her to doctors. I had taken her to mental health emergency rooms because that's the only thing I learned at Duke Divinity School. But again, I was grateful for my Catholics who said, after you do that, if none of that works, you know, that's when I called up the Jesuits in Charlotte and said, this is your area, not mine. But anyway, she, there was one particular day um, I saw a lot of um, just change in the course of about 90 minutes with her. And um, she, she left the church, and when she left the church, um, I heard a voice behind me, a sarcastic, evil-sounding voice, more snarky, sarcastic, say to me, you think you can help her, don't you? Well, it didn't even bother me because I figured somebody was in the church. I turned around, and there was no human being behind me. So you can call the bishop if you want to. I believe that that was a demon that I heard speak in that instance. Now, it's the only time it's ever happened in my life, which I'm very grateful for. But I don't want that to confuse me to believe that demons are not real. Any more than I want to be confused that angels are not real. You know, that's one of their primary instruments is just make you, particularly from the demonic world, for you just to believe they're not real, then they got you. They got you at that point. We don't want to see demons under every rock, but we certainly don't want to believe there are no such things. Um, that was the only time in my whole life that ever happened. I've never heard a voice like that again. I don't really want to hear a voice like that again. But I just offer it to you because I hope maybe at this stage in my life you think I've got decent good sense. I don't think, you know, I even, when that happened, I even thought, okay, this lady's driving me crazy. I was open to, I, for a while, I was open to everything about, except maybe that was a demon that was speaking to me. Um, particularly the way I felt when I turned around, there was no human being present behind me in the narthex of that church. Um, all that looking back, and it, I, I made the decision pretty quickly right after the time that, yeah, I, that was a thin place, not the kind of thin place that I prefer. I like those thin places where heaven and earth come close together. I don't like those thin places where hell and earth come close together. But if we believe that there are thin places where heaven and earth can almost touch, we need to at least be broad-minded enough, open-minded enough to think maybe there's also some thin places where hell and earth can get really close together. So, that's more than enough. Um, probably should have done demons and then went to angels, but I hope y'all sleep well tonight. But know who you are in Christ. Know the resources and the power that you have in Christ. He might be able to outsmart you, but you have the power. One of my, one of my favorite verses is 1 John, oh, I think it's about... Chapter 4, around verse 10, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Hope you got that one memorized. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, another great verse, book of James, uh, probably chapter 4, around verse 7 or so. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice, you got to submit to God first. Don't try to resist the devil until you've submitted to God. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he doesn't have a choice but flee from you. Again, we got more power.
Um, so I hope you read the Bible differently. There's a lot of stuff in this book about these topics. And I encourage you not to blow over them, to read them and take them seriously. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for these people that, that will give up an, an evening during the week after working a long day because they want to know your word, they want to know your will, and they know that somehow knowing your will is connected to knowing your word. So we pray that we'll know your word so that we can follow your will in all of life. We thank you, God, that you're still working on each one of us. You're growing us up into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you're doing through us here in this community. So we go forth from this place tonight, God, praying that through your work in us and through us, this community will know that Jesus Christ is Lord. So send us forth in his name, send us forth in his power. Amen. Go in peace.